Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Dr. Greg Potter. Greg holds degrees in exercise science and a PhD from the University of Leeds, researching sleep, circadian rhythms, nutrition, and metabolism. Beyond academia, Greg is the host of Reason and Wellbeing podcast, has co-founded multiple startups, and has dedicated over a decade to coaching organizations and individuals and optimizing wellness and performance across various contexts. This is part two of our conversation. In part one, we discussed the five fascinating ways how our biological rhythms affect crucial parts of your body, from brain to muscles to your cardiovascular system, and what that means for when you should sleep, eat, exercise, take cold baths, as well as the incredible impact your biological rhythm has on your physical performance. Today, we will do a deep dive on sleep and the three powerful ways to finally get good sleep health. Enjoy. Given the severity of the consequences that you've just mentioned with some very drastic examples from there's a higher prob probability to be part of an accident, judges changing the rulings, what do you think is the state of sleep in our current society generally? To throw a couple of data points in here, the global sleep aids market is projected to surpass 100 billion by 2026, which indicates growing concerns about sleep health in some of the studies, up to 60% of the people around the globe said that they have problems with sleep. How does that match with your perception and what's the trend? Yeah, I'll try and take those separately. And I think the reality is that the trends depend on the particular forms of sleep disturbances that you're looking at. But to give you some high level figures, Clearly, problems with sleep, whether those are problems that people notice or whether they're problems that people don't really notice and they assume are benign, clearly are contributing to people's health and are quite pervasive. For example, if we just look at garden variety insufficient sleep, people having to wake to an alarm in the morning which over time is gonna compress their sleep opportunity and contribute to some background sleep debt, then while I haven't seen data from very large scale studies recently, a good example of this going back to 2012 is looking at Till Ronenberg's MCTQ dataset, which contains information on the sleep of hundreds of thousands of people. And in that dataset, over 80% of people use alarm clocks to wake before work on work days. There's probably some background sleep debt that most of us are experiencing. Regarding the particular trend and whether people are sleeping less over time, which is the question that follows, it's not so clear. And again, it's probably going to depend on the country that you're looking at. And I think people have overblown the degree to which things are getting worse. Some people, I think, have alarmed others by saying that we're in a sleep loss epidemic and I don't know if that's really the case if you look at time use survey data for example and in America they run this American time use survey each year in which they ask people round the clock every few minutes what are you doing right now what are you doing right now what are you doing right now and people just report what they're doing they then look at what people of different ages are doing in a given year and how the trends are changing over time when people have looked at the time use survey data in relation to sleep, they've actually found that people report dedicating more time to their sleep. David Dinges and Matthias Basner published some work on this a few years ago. It was a great study, but they basically found that before work days, people reported getting 1.4 minutes more sleep per year from 2003 to 2016. So each night before work days, per year they're getting 1.4 minutes more sleep and on weekends they were also getting slightly more sleep per night per year i know that's slightly difficult to pass but 
overall, those data suggested that people were giving themselves a longer sleep opportunity, which if you held sleep quality constant would mean that people were getting more sleep over time. And I think that might well be the case in some parts of the world. So it's not just that everything is going in the trash and <laughs> sleep problems are getting worse across the board and there is hope. But certainly I think there are some negative trends too. And to give very pervasive and I think particularly problematic example of this, we can look at obstructive sleep apnea, which is a sleep disorder in which the upper airway intermittently collapses during sleep, which temporarily starves the brain of oxygen and it leads people to gasp for air and they wake up. And these types of episodes can happen dozens of times per hour. And sure enough, that is associated with increased risk of lots of different downstream consequences, including cardiovascular diseases and accidents because people are really sleepy during the day. And that is a hallmark characteristic of people experiencing this. And much of the time it's undiagnosed. So if we look at obstructive sleep apnea, then maybe the most interesting study that I've seen regarding the prevalence of this condition was published by Atul Malhotra a few years ago. And in their analysis, they looked at different forms of sleep apnea according to its severity. There's something called the apnea hypopnea index that's used. And what they found was that globally, they estimated that nearly a, a billion middle-aged adults worldwide were experiencing some sleep apnea a few years ago. And when you think about the total number of adults worldwide, that means that it's alarmingly common and probably going to be causing all sorts of health issues that we could otherwise saw if we could just get to the root of the issue. And a lot of sleep apnea is driven by the fact that people are getting heavier over time. Obesity is more and more burdensome. And as people gain weight and they gain fat in particular, the mass of the neck increases. So the neck is more likely to collapse during sleep. In turn, that leads people to stop being able to breathe during the night. And that is what's driving this trend. So clearly obstructive sleep apnea is on the rise and it's being driven by the fact that people are getting heavier. Looking at other sleep issues, the trends aren't quite so clear. So if we look at insomnia, for example, which most people think of as being the most pervasive sleep disorder. And there are six broad categories of sleep disorder, but insomnia is thought to be the most common of these. And whether it still is, I'm not sure, given how widespread obstructive sleep apnea now is. But insomnia is quite common. Looking at the most recent data, it seems that something like 8% of adults experience chronic insomnia, which is difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or difficulty because people wake up much earlier than they would like despite giving themselves an adequate sleep opportunity occurring at least three days a week for at least the last three months. And insomnia is associated with all sorts of problems, especially mental health ones. Some people have even suggested that insomnia could be its own psychological or psychiatric disorder because its association with mood problems such as depression and anxiety is so tight. And while, as is often the case with sleep, there's a two-way relationship between mental health problems and insomnia in that flares in anxiety and depression can worsen sleep. If anything, the direction seems to be that insomnia comes first. There have been very careful studies showing that insomnia predicts subsequent mood disturbances. And so clearly it's a big problem, but whether the trend is in the right or the wrong direction is hard to identify at the moment. And there are lots of people that will experience acute insomnia in response to life events. And much of the time, it's just because people are excited. You've got your wedding come up and as your wedding nears, you're pumped about the wedding and seeing all of your loved ones in the same place and you lose sleep the same way that when you were eight years old, you lost sleep the night before Christmas because you're looking forward to whatever father Christmas was going to bring you the next day. But in other instances, the acute insomnia is driven by something that is distressful. Maybe you are in a compromised position financially. Maybe you've just had a big fight with your partner. Maybe you've just lost a loved one. And what you find with acute insomnia is that 
when the disturbance disappears, when the thing that is disrupting your sleep disappears, when you solve your relationship issue, when you have more money coming in, whatever it is, the acute insomnia will just resolve. And so you don't actually really need to treat the sleep issue. You need to treat the source of the problem, which is always the case. So th those are just a few examples of how widespread some common forms of sleep issues are and some of their consequences. But just to summarize, I think it's hard to identify whether things are getting better or worse. And importantly, I think people are a lot more interested in their sleep than they used to be. And also importantly, I think there are some quite simple things that most people can do to improve their sleep that can dramatically improve how they feel and perform each day. And a lot of those things are things that they haven't necessarily tried because I think a lot of people are familiar with common sleep hygiene advice. And I see this the whole, the whole time when I help people with their sleep or have people come to me with chronic insomnia and they will have stopped consuming any caffeine. They no, no longer drink alcohol. They sleep in a cool bedroom. They're careful about the patterns of light exposure, but they're missing a few really important behaviors that make all the difference for them. Before going into how to improve our sleep and sleep health, allow me to insert one more question. And that is, if there is a way without going into too much detail, because I think for our listeners, it would be great if we then are able to focus on how to improve sleep and maybe even take one step higher and say, okay, with that also in mind, how can, what are the principles to really work with our bodily clocks in general? But so before going into this advice, I would say, one more question on the, the on sleep, and that is when we talk about sleep health, how would you define that? So there are probably things in there like duration, the regularity of sleep, quality for whatever that's worth. That's a very broad, that's a very broad word. Which of these are how important and which of these, when we lack them or are bad in, in, in a sense, are really detrimental to our uh, health performance being? The subject of sleep health has been neglected. And a lot of the research that's been done has focused on some of its dimensions, such as sleep duration. How long do you sleep? Whether that's asking somebody how long they sleep or whether it's measuring it using more objective measures. And then a few years ago, a psychiatrist named Daniel Bicey put forward the concept of sleep health and attempts to define it for the first time. And if there are people listening to this who are particularly interested in the subject, then they should definitely look up that first paper that he wrote on sleep health because it's accessible, it's intriguing, and I think it does a really good job of balancing the importance of different dimensions of sleep health. And I think when we're thinking of sleep health, it's helpful just to give an example of what healthy sleep looks like. And to me, healthy sleep is characterized by a few things, but those include when you wake in the morning, you look back on your sleep and you feel like it was good quality. You feel refreshed. During the daytime, you have good function. You're able to remember where you put your keys. You're not looking for your glasses when they're on your face. You aren't sleepy and falling asleep at the wheel. You have a bright mood. In the evening, you feel sleepy at roughly the same time each day. When you do go to bed, you fall asleep quite quickly, certainly within 30 minutes. And then during the night, you wake infrequently, maybe once or twice, and only for short periods, probably for less than 30 minutes in total. Those, to me, are some core features of healthy sleep. And that brings up these different dimensions of sleep that we can consider. And when Daniel Bicey proposed the concept of multidimensional sleep health, the way that he went about it was to look at different dimensions of sleep that independently predict risk of various different chronic diseases and also independently predict risk of subsequent all-cause mortality, which is someone's risk of dying regardless of what they die from whether that's an accident or whether that's cardiovascular disease or cancer. 
And when he did that, he came up with a few different dimensions. So one of them is sleep duration. One of them is sleep timing. And we can think of sleep timing in a few different ways. You can think of it as timing relative to the social clock that's on the wall. But you could also think about this as timing relative to your biological clock. And that's particularly relevant to shift workers. There's a sleep disorder named shift work disorder that affects about a quarter of shift workers where it's a bit like experiencing jet lag in that when they try and sleep, they have insomnia. And when they're awake, they are fatigued, they are sleepy, they are irritable. We can think of those different aspects of timing and also regularity of sleep. So how consistent is the timing of your sleep from day to day, whether you look at sleep onset, sleep offset, or the midpoint of sleep. And then finally, sleep quality, which you mentioned, which is a little harder to conceptualize just because there are lots of different things that we could look at. So a common one, for instance, would be subjective sleep quality. You could just ask someone on a scale of one to 10, how well do you feel you slept last night? Or how high quality was your sleep? But we can use more objective measures too. Common one is sleep efficiency, which is the proportion of time that you're in bed that you're actually asleep. So if you're in bed for 10 hours and you're actually asleep for eight hours, your sleep will be 80% efficient, just to use simple numbers. But there are other measures of quality that we could look at. So we could look at electrophysiology. We could look at patterns of electrical activity in the brain, which correspond to sleep stages. Many listeners will be familiar with non-REM and REM sleep. REM stands for rapid eye movement sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which you have your most vivid dreams. And non-REM sleep is the other stage of sleep, which is split into three stages. And when looking at healthy young individuals with good sleep, they have certain proportions of these discrete sleep stages when they are studied in laboratory conditions using electrodes over their scalps that measure their brain waves. And so we could look at sleep architecture, those different sleep stages, but there are some other things that we could look at related to sleep quality too, such as how well people breathe. So there are these different dimensions of sleep health, but what Bicey proposed is that they're all important, they interact, and if we can look at all of them together, then we will probably best be able to predict people's health outcomes and also understand how to better help people sleep. And there have been a few studies now looking at a multidimensional metric of sleep health using methods such as machine learning that have shown that looking at sleep health as a construct of these different parts better predicts future health outcomes than just looking at one of the parts alone. And there was a nice study that he published a few years ago showing that Sleep health as a multidimensional construct was one of the strongest predictors of all-cause mortality of everything that they looked at. And they looked at many different aspects of lifestyle, physical health, medication use, and so on. So hopefully that provides some relative background or some relevant background, but suffice it to say that all of these different dimensions are important. They influence each other. Trying to work out the relative importance of each is tricky but we need to be thinking about them all and historically people have focused too much on sleep duration when things like sleep timing and regularity are really important too. You already triggered before this question, my curiosity when you said, hey, there are a bunch of things that one could do to improve sleep health. Many of those likely, which people who have been experiencing struggles have not been actually considering so far, or maybe not have been focusing on. So coming back to that, what are the most, let's say, important or effective principles to improve sleep health, or almost like a checklist to go through? Have you considered these things if you're experiencing issues with your sleep health? It's a good question. And it's tricky because the reality is that there are many different sleep problems. There are six broad categories of sleep disorders and there are dozens of individual sleep disorders. But I think that we can actually take a relatively trans-diagnostic approach and help people 
such that the interventions that we use to help people sleep better are actually quite similar across the board. And one way to go about this is that there are some things that everything, everybody should be doing. And those include the core aspects of sleep hygiene that are widely discussed. Sleeping in a cool, dark bedroom, not drinking too much alcohol, not consuming too many stimulants, not drinking too much coffee and tea and so on. Those types of things. And we should all be doing those. However, there are also some individual modules that each of us should be doing depending on the main sleep disturbance that we're experiencing. And when looking at the most common sleep issues, those include chronic insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea. And they often co-occur. I think a lot of people believe they have one of these. Maybe they think, oh, I have chronic insomnia and they seek treatment for that. But actually, when you measure their sleep, it turns out that they also snore heavily and they're on the cusp of having obstructive sleep apnea. And they could really do with addressing that snoring too. And if they do, then they'll get better results than if they only treated the insomnia by itself. What I'll do is I'll mention a few things that I think are particularly helpful for the majority of people who are experiencing some sleep difficulties. And then you can grab hold of any of those or, or ask for some additional information regarding things that I've missed because I recognize that I will have missed a lot. Starting with insomnia, I think it's really important that people understand something called stimulus control of behavior. It sounds fancy. It's actually really simple. And the idea is just that our brains are always trying to create shortcuts and make life easier and learn how things are related to each other. They're quick to make associations. As an example of this, when you're learning to drive, you learn that as you approach a red light, you need to slow down and slow down. You need to put your foot on the brake. And so over time, the stimulus, which is the red light, leads you to reflexively engage in a certain behavior, which is putting your foot on the brake. So that's an example of stimulus, red light, control of behavior, braking. In insomnia, what happens is that People spend lots of time awake in bed and they learn to associate stimulus, the bed, with a behavior, which is being awake. And they have to recondition themselves to associate the bed with sleep. And the way they do that is actually quite simple. It's by spending less time awake in bed. And that means only using your bed for sex and sleep, nothing else, no reading in bed, no watching TV in bed, no arguing with your spouse in bed, nothing like that. It means not napping during the day, and less essential for safety, just because even a short nap can pay off a lot of the pressure to sleep that's accumulated in your brain during prior wakefulness. And that pressure to sleep helps you quickly fall asleep at night and stay asleep. It means only going to bed at night when you're actually sleepy, because what your insomnia is, a kind of hyper-focus on sleep, where people become very attuned to all sorts of cues that are related to sleep, whether it's an advert about a mattress on the wall or whether it's the light in the room, whatever it might be. And as a result, they start to enforce very strict rules related to their sleep, one of which might be my bedtime is 10 p.m. That is when I go to bed. I need to be in bed by 10 p.m. If 10 p.m. rolls around and they're not sleepy, they should not go to bed at 10 p.m. They should wait until they're sleepy and only then go to bed because that way they won't just be lying in bed wide awake, worsening their problem. And then when they're in bed, if they haven't fallen asleep within 15 minutes, and when I say 15 minutes, people should just be going by their sense of time passing rather than watching the clock. Don't watch the clock if you have insomnia. There's actually something called clock watching anxiety that makes people really worked up and worsens their sleep, which is ironic. But just go by your own internal sense of time passing and if you haven't fallen asleep after roughly 15 minutes, get out of bed, go to a different room, do something relaxing and dim lighting until you feel sleepy. Could be reading a book, could be meditating, whatever it is, and only then return to bed. If you do that, then very quickly, you'll be spending much less time awake in bed. The quality of your sleep will improve substantially too. And as a final tip, you could also set an alarm in the morning so that you're standardizing when you're waking each day. And what that's gonna do is help build lots of pressure to sleep because you're awake for slightly longer each day, which can help you quickly fall asleep and stay asleep. 
setting that alarm is also going to regularize when you're exposed to time cues in the environment, such as the light-dark cycle, supporting the function of your body's clock. Stimulus control therapy alone can be really helpful if you're having any insomnia type symptoms. A lot of sleep problems are related to work issues too, and just to psychological distress in general. I think this is something that we can all relate to. You're worked up for whatever reason, and temporarily your sleep goes out the window because when you get in bed at the end of the day, you finally have a moment to yourself and here comes the monkey mind and you just can't fall asleep because you have all of these ideas or frustrations pinballing around your mind. And if that's familiar, then I think there are some simple things that you can do and we can actually draw on some of the methods that are used in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and apply them to our lives. One approach that I particularly like is called scheduling worry time. And what you're trying to do with this method is to compartmentalize when you're wiring each day so that you're actually giving yourself time and maybe a space in which to worry too. And then when you have finished your worry time, you're committing to not worrying until your worry time the following day, which obviously isn't going to happen. You are going to worry, but hopefully the extent of those worries outside of your worry time is going to diminish over time. So what you might do, for example, is around the end of your working day, sit down with a piece of paper and a pen, draw a line down the piece of paper, and in the left-hand column, list whatever you're concerned about right now. And then to the right of that, note some small action that you can take to address that particular concern. And if there's nothing that you can do, then don't worry about it. Just put, there's nothing I can do about this right now. And the mere act of writing that down might help you. And this is an example of a problem-focused coping strategy where you're trying to get to the root of a particular problem, come up with some creative solution to it. And then when the problem is solved, given that the problem is the source of your sleep disturbance, you are in turn improving your sleep. There are also some emotion-focused coping strategies that can be really helpful, which are basically things that don't directly affect the source of the issue, but support your body's ability to cope with the issue. And into that bucket go many things that support your general health, like being physically active. For example, meditating. There are also some specific relaxation strategies that can be really helpful. In particular, just breathing emphasizes exhalation. People might be familiar with approaches such as the physiological side that's been popularized in recent times. There's very little research on it, but the thing that people need to understand is just that the breathing needs to be relaxed. Ideally, it would be primarily diaphragmatic. So a lot of movement is happening at the belly as opposed to breathing through some or using some of these other muscles to breathe. And the exhalation is emphasized. And one way that you can do that is to breathe in through your nose, but then to exhale through pursed lips as if you were blowing on a hot drink to cool it down. If you lie down and you engage in that type of breathing for just five to 10 minutes shortly before sleep, you'll help shift the balance of activity in your nervous system in a way that helps you fall asleep and have high quality sleep too. So simple relaxation exercise can be really helpful. And then the last one that I'll mention is given how common obstructive sleep apnea is now, I think if you have certain symptoms like excessive daytime sleepiness, you find yourself feeling really sleepy during the day, maybe that's at work, maybe that's even in conversation with others, maybe you really want a nap the whole time. If you wake up with a dry mouth in the morning, all of these are signs that you might well have obstructive sleep apnea. And there's a simple questionnaire it's an acronym, STOPBANG, S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G. And there's a website, stopbang.ca, where you can go that takes you through some questions related to common sleep apnea risk factors that will give you some idea of the likelihood that you have this particular condition. And then if you do have it, you can contact a doctor and ask to look into it more. Because if you find out that you have obstructive sleep apnea and you get it treated and the treatments are really effective, Depending on the nature of the sleep apnea, they often include what's called positive airway pressure, which is wearing a mask that provides a continuous or near continuous stream of air that keeps the upper airway open, stopping the throat from collapsing. 
and then helping you stay asleep. They can completely change how people feel. People will commonly report it's like having had a brain transplant, but also it's not just that they're less sleepy during the day and best, better able to concentrate. It's also that their blood pressure improves, their erectile function improves if they're men. If they have poor blood sugar control, then that might get better too. There are all sorts of things that will go in the right direction off the back of getting that treated. So I realize I jumped straight to the tips there, Daniel, but I hope some of that was helpful. This has been incredibly helpful for myself and the listeners. I just generally think that despite you saying that the trends aren't actually that bad, it might even seem that some of them are improving. It still feels for me that in large parts of society, sleep is treated like an afterthought, almost like a necessary evil that you have to do at the end of a day. And I wonder what would happen if you would start treating sleep as a as this magic pill provided by nature to make you healthy, balanced, happy, leaner, physically stronger, better looking, being grateful for it and optimizing for it to some degree. I would assume society and all kinds of data at population level around health and happiness would skyrocket if that would be more the mindset that we would that we would all take. I can just relate a personal story to this, which very much resonated or basically was exactly what you meant with worry time. I think it's a very common thing around entrepreneurs that in at the end of the day, in the evening, when you lie in bed, all those thoughts go through your head and typically your mood at the end of the day and your resilience also, your mental resilience at the end of the day is set in, in a certain way where you focus on the problems and they all feel huge and, and terrible. Some of them are, but most of them are typically not. But they stopped, they started in my head and I couldn't get rid of them. And so I lay awake in bed and then it was 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning, but still I had to get up early uh, in, in, in the morning. So I had these, I don't know, four hours of terrible sleep uh, th that I had then started in the day again. And that was this vicious cycle of my performance, my mood degraded because of my performance and my mood degrading, the problems seemed to be bigger and actually got bigger at the end of the day. I worried more in the evening. And then the very simple thing that, that I did was I scheduled every morning, I, I called it a reflection time, but basically it is let my brain find all the problems that it wants to find. And next to reserving that time and having that in the morning so I don't have that at night anymore. My brain is just calm because it knows in the morning I'm going to get up and I'm going to be able to worry. The other thing was that in the morning I, I had a very different way of looking at the problems. Not only did most of the problems look much smaller in the end, but you, I at least had a much more productive way in thinking about these problems only wanting to give an example to what you said and how powerful that has been in my life. That's great to hear. And I'll just chime in with a few more thoughts. One is that to tie that back to stimulus control of behavior, I mentioned you could actually do this in a specific space. And some people will recommend having a worry chair. So you designate a particular chair in your home and that is where you go to worry. And then the rest of the time, if you have a worry, you need to go back to your worry chair in the corner. And you might find that you are better able to actually compartmentalize your worry. So the rest of the time you are less concerned. And then in due course, your sleep improves too. And then you touched on the idea of there being a vicious cycle where sleep problems beget daytime issues and then daytime issues worse than the sleep problems and you end up in this horrible spiral of doom and the opposite of that of course is a virtuous cycle where as your sleep improves your daytime function improves and then your sleep improves more in response to that and so what we're trying to do is to help shift people from that type of spiral to the virtuous cycle and interestingly if we look at healthy sleep then doing things to support sleep health do help people come up with creative solutions to problems. There are all sorts of 
entertaining historical anecdotes of that, looking at some of the most brilliant people who have ever lived, whether you're considering Salvador Dali or someone else. But there are probably specific stages of sleep that are key to coming up with creative solutions, especially rapid eye movement sleep, which is that stage of sleep in which you have your most vivid dreams. And most of that sleep occurs in the second half of the sleep period. So not that long before you wake in the morning. And during this time, it's like your brain is exploring weak, distant associations between autobiographical memories from a long time ago and recent experiences to try and creatively come up with some new solution. And so I'm just using that as an example because it demonstrates how sleep can improve our lives in so many ways. And I love what you said about focusing on the importance of sleep and prioritizing sleep and not seeing it as a cost, how much can we afford at the end of the day, but seeing it more as an investment in tomorrow. And that's precisely how I frame it when speaking with people. And I realized that some of the conversation that we've had today is focused on the downsides of disrupting the clock and poor sleep. But at the same time, if you take somebody who has poor clock function or poor sleep and you do simple things to improve their sleep, then so many benefits follow from those simple changes. And regardless of what you look at, whether you're looking at exercise performance, whether you're looking at workplace performance, whether you're looking at metabolic regulation, Disrupting sleep and the clock will worsen those things, but improving sleep and clock function will improve those things. So I just hope that we haven't overemphasized the negative and people just need to bear in mind that there are simple things they can do to improve these things. And in turn, whatever they're struggling with is likely to follow. I'm a person who has typically very a very regular schedule so in bed between 10 and 10 30 and awake 5 30 to to 6 except for social gatherings typically i would say social responsibilities because i'm not that much of an socially outgoing person i restrict that quite a lot but my, my role just requires that to a certain extent with everything that you've said before and understood around regularity, alcohol, food, and all of these kind of things. Now, assuming if I go out for these social gatherings, I do want to have some alcohol and I will, I am going to eat something in, in the restaurant and it's going to be later than 10, my normal bedtime. Is there anything I can do to dampen the effects of this change in my schedule and how about next morning should i sleep in or wake up at the same time or do i just have to suck it up and get over with it <laughs> yeah. yeah good question and very practical because i think that's a situation that so many of us face i think some of it relates to trying to engage in damage limitation during the actual event itself and so if we look at food intake, that can entail some really simple things like, this sounds silly, using a smaller plate when you're going to the buffet as opposed to a bigger plate because you're probably going to put less food on the smaller plate. And when you do go and you put food on your plate, start by putting vegetables and high protein foods on your plate and then save the really tasty stuff for a bit later on because there's some research showing that when you have a high protein, high fiber meal, your subsequent appetite and food intake are likely to be lower and also your blood sugar control is likely to be better too. Load up on protein and veggies at the meal if they are there as options. Regarding alcohol, I think drinking plenty of water and you can have water before the meal and the alcohol too. You can otherwise alternate between alcoholic drinks and non-alcoholic ones. You can also choose weak alcoholic drinks and maybe that would mean choosing a different type of wine or a different type of beer maybe if you're having a mixer it's going for a liquor that's weaker than the alternative but hopefully you get the idea and then after the actual event itself i think 
doing things to, to get yourself off to sleep as quickly as possible. So trying to stick to having some brief period of relaxation before sleep, which could mean doing a breathing exercise while listening to relaxing music and dim lighting is going to be a good idea. Regarding sleeping in, difficulty is that I think most people benefit from trying to keep wake time as regular as possible, but occasionally some of us have much, much later sleep onset than we normally would. And that's especially true of early chronotypes. And I think not letting yourself sleep in any later than about two hours before your normal wake time is a good place to start for most people. And I would certainly let adolescents sleep in up to two hours on the weekend. But just bear in mind that even if your sleep opportunity is shorter and numerically the total amount of time that you spend in bed in subsequent nights isn't equivalent to had you not gone out your body likes to protect how much sleep it's getting and in particular how much of certain types of sleep and daniel i know that you're interested in this idea of sleep debt and whether it's possible to fully repay the debt that you accrue when you have nights like this and if you look at total sleep time it doesn't seem to be but if you look at the best marker that we have of somebody's sleep need, which is a particular type of electrical activity in the brain called slow wave activity. They're these high amplitude slow waves that start around the bridge of the nose and sweep backwards through the brain that occur during the deeper stage of sleep, which is some kind of, sometimes called slow wave sleep or deep sleep or N3 sleep. Slow wave activity seems to reflect your recent sleep history and if you look at slow wave activity accumulated over time which is sometimes called slow wave energy then you can repay the debt so basically your, your body is particularly hungry for this type of sleep and even if the total amount of sleep that it's getting is less you'll probably find that the total amount of this particular type of activity is pretty much the same regardless so even if you don't have quite as much time in bed the quality of your sleep will be different such that the intensity of your sleep is higher. And a parallel that I'd probably draw would be between that of sleep and hunger. If you fast for the next two days, then you might not find that the following two days you spend a lot longer over the course of the day eating, but the amount of food that's concentrated into your eating window will probably be higher to compensate for the fact that you've recently missed out on some food. Sleep is a bit like that. And then regarding the next day and things like caffeine and light exposure, I think if you do sleep in, it's probably particularly important to get outdoors into daylight shortly after waking, because that way you're going to avoid your clock drifting later. Imagine that the event is on a Friday night, you go to bed later, you sleep in a bit, you wake up on Saturday later than normal. If you then go to bed late Saturday night and late Sunday night, then come Monday, you're going to feel horrible because the night before your work you will have missed out on a substantial amount of sleep so you're trying to keep your clock on time but still let yourself have that sleep opportunity and the way that you do that is plenty of morning light exposure regarding total light exposure duration each day i think certainly people should aim to spend at least one hour in daylight each day regardless but in this type of situation i think if you can get outdoors for at least a couple of hours shortly after waking that's going to help accelerate your clock and avoid that drift in your sleep timing happening, as is reducing your consumption of caffeine. And if you're a habitual caffeine consumer, then I wouldn't go cold turkey because you'll probably just end up with a headache that might be exacerbated by a hangover after drinking the night before. So don't do that, but just keep your caffeine intake in check. So maybe, for example, you have one coffee and then you have a decaf or two after that, as opposed to your normal two coffees, because while caffeine seems to primarily affect sleep homeostasis or homeostatic sleep drive, which is that slow wave activity that I mentioned earlier, it can actually affect your body's clock too. There was some work done by Ken Wright seven years ago showing that consuming 2.9 milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight, which is about a double espresso for most people, three hours before bed, shifted people's body's clocks later by about 40 minutes as assessed by looking at the timing of their melatonin rhythm. So caffeine late in the day can actually push back your clock. 
So basically, limit your caffeine intake, have it soon after waking, get outdoors and stay light for at least a couple of hours, be physically active at that time, make sure you're hydrated, and then maybe don't go down to the all-you-can-eat diner and just deepen the damage that you've just done, and instead try and have a healthy breakfast, which, given your recent sleep loss, might be relatively low in carbohydrate because your blood sugar control is going to be worse than it normally would be. So hopefully that's helpful. The ultimate hangover Saturday tips. <laughs> I will remember them. Allow me to ask you to finish your questions just to get your gut level, gut reaction to them. First one is, what does happiness mean to you? Oh, I was not expecting that. Do you mean what makes me happy or do you mean something else by that? More what, how think would you define happiness? A lot of things that you? make me happy are, are very simple. How would I define happiness? There are probably different aspects of it. I think part of it is joy and elation and jubilation and celebration. But it's not just about hedonism and going out and having an amazing time, going to beautiful places and spending time with people that you love, doing these intensely pleasurable experiences. But instead, it, it's about a background level of happiness and contentment and peace that is driven by comfort. And it's also such that you, you need some dips between the highs to actually appreciate the highs. You can't just have highs the whole time. And a lot of things that are worth it in the long run can be really difficult in the short term. They're not necessarily pleasurable. Sometimes they're really hard physically, cognitively. Daniel, you've built an incredibly successful business. You're more familiar with that than most of us. But the activities might still be intrinsically rewarding and motivating. And I think a lot of this actually comes down to helping other people too. And I know some of the research on happiness suggests that people tend to get the most long-term contentment from helping others rather than focusing on themselves. And so activities that involve other people and that pay it back or pay it forward to other people actually really tend to help individuals a lot. And those can take the form of volunteering or maybe some of the work that you do is intrinsically valuable too. And I'm speaking generalities here, but I, I know that is true of me too. But coming back to myself, I think a lot of the things that make me happy are quite simple, like a beautiful sunrise, a beautiful sunset, watching my girlfriend do silly things, drinking great coffee and seeing my nieces and nephews and spending time in nature when I feel like I can just be present and unplug from some of the chaos of everyday life. It might just be walking in the woods. I've developed a really strong affinity for trees and plants in recent times. And I've always been drawn to places of natural beauty. And, and when I can, I try to get out and go scuba diving and spend time hiking and that kind of thing. But I also think a big part of happiness is trying to get to a state where you're content with things as they are. You're not constantly trying to change things, trying to manipulate your environment so that it's just so that you can be happy. And instead it's finding a state where you are content with things as they are regardless, which I realize can sound quite Buddhist, but I think that there's a deep truth within that. Last question, gut reaction. If you could live your life again, what would you wish you would have fully understood at the age of 20? I think a few things. I think one of them is it's really important to nurture your relationships with people. And I haven't had any big bust ups with people or anything like that, but I look back and I sometimes regret not having invested more in certain relationships in my life. And I think a lot of people's most important relationships are actually developed quite early in their lives. And so I'd probably really drill home the importance of that because as humans, we are such social beings and 
I'm an introvert like you, Daniel. And I, I'm quite strongly introverted. But we all need people. And I've been very fortunate to have some great people in my life. But I now feel like I'm somewhat playing catch up with a few people because I just didn't spend enough time with them. And it wasn't really through neglect. Sometimes you're in a different location and actually going and seeing those people is a lot harder than it otherwise would be. But certainly investing in relationships, I think, is really important. I think another one would be building transferable career capital, which might sound like a word salad. But what I mean by that is skills that are rare and valuable that you can use in different contexts because things change. And I think especially nowadays, it's likely that most of us will go through multiple career transitions. And so when thinking about developing skills that are going to be helpful in the workplace, it's important to develop ones that you're going to be able to imply in lots of, apply in lots of different situations. So those could be things like learning how to program computers. That is a skill that I think is going to be very valuable, certainly for the rest of my lifetime, regardless. Maybe I'll be proven wrong about that, but I don't think I will be. So thinking about developing some of those skills and then I think otherwise being easy to work with, the importance of that. And I realize two, two of these have been about work, but I think just being easy to interact with in general, because fundamentally, I think most people understand the importance of kindness. But I think that there have been times when I've probably been more difficult than I needed to be. <laughs> and I, I wish that wasn't the case. And I'm now 33 and I look back and I think, oh, I wish that I'd learned that when I was a little bit younger and, and saved myself a few headaches along the way. Where should listeners go to learn more about you or your work? I'd love it if listeners check out Reason and Wellbeing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or elsewhere. That's the podcast that I host. It's a, a young podcast. I only started it back in June. True to its title, a lot of it focuses on physical and mental well-being and subjects such as the ones that we've discussed today. But it is also about reason. In the future, I think I'm going to open up the diversity of the subjects that we address to many other issues too that are topical and important, particularly ones that are consequential and somewhat neglected. So certainly listen to Reason Wellbeing if you're not familiar with it and let me know your thoughts and you can get in touch with me on Instagram. I'm at Greg Potter PhD. You can also find me on LinkedIn at Greg Potter PhD. If you have any questions related to anything we've discussed today, you can also just send me a message on Instagram. And thank you so much for tuning in. Greg, thanks a lot for taking the time. It has been incredibly insightful. My pleasure. Thanks, Daniel. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the show. I would love to get your comments, suggestions, and feedback. Also, if there's a special topic you would like me to address or someone specific you'd love to see on the show. If you want to support me, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating. I hope you will listen in again on the next show. Until then, all the best.